Wow. That was just one of the most fascinating interviews with Lucy Sparrow, founder of So Your Soul, an amazing woman, an amazing artist who really has explained that our fascinations in life, our obsessions, the niche that we find ourselves in absolutely can become our lives, our day jobs. Not only was she sitting talking to me whilst still creating her felt creations, because if she even took a minute out of the day and got behind, it was like a conveyor belt of felt that would just sort of tumble on top of her. She also had this way of just bringing light and love and fun to her subject. And I think it's one for all of us to listen to, to understand that if we can dream it, we really can create it. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Lucy. What a pleasure it is to have some time with you today. As you know, I'm a big fan and I'm going to mention that throughout this entire podcast. (laughs) But welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Tell me where you are, because I can see that you're in front of some filing cabinets. Well, thank you, Holly. It's lovely to be here. And um, yeah, I'm really happy to be joining you. Uh, Today, you are seeing me in my archive room, actually one of three archive rooms because I've made a lot of stuff and it's where I put all the patterns and samples for everything that I make. So when I make one, I make I actually make two. I make a flat sample and a made sample. So they're like a, a roadmap with everything that I make, just like you would patterns with clothes. So we've got poisons and sexual health behind you, which is just, you know, your average setup. Tell me about where this all began, because I'd love to start with your upbringing. You grew up in Bath in an artistic household. Your mum and your gran were sewers, making curtains and cushions. And your father did a lot of writing. And I read that you, I wrote this down, I nearly cringed, felt, excuse the pun, (laughs) your own creativity was definitely encouraged as a child. Is that true? It definitely was. Um, My my mum did lots of like pen and ink drawings. She was always doing sort of watercolours with us and she'd sit me and my sister down and we'd we'd like do it, but it was always me that was like the absolute nerd when it came to art. I was always like super creative right from when I was like four years old. So I sort of seized upon it. My sister, creative in her own way, but not necessarily like sort of like withdrawing. And I just, it's all I wanted to do. I was absolutely obsessed with it. Any, t- any given time, I didn't want to be doing anything else, just drawing, making. It's quite incredible, isn't it, when you think of the influence we have as children. It just astounds me still when I think back 
to all the stories I've heard, the influence of our childhoods. You've said before that you were a nerdy, weird and kooky child with a vivid imagination. What was that like? I mean, I think it was challenging at times because I had I had so much energy as a kid and, and like my mum and dad have told me that I was in a nice way, quite difficult because I was constantly asking questions and it, there was sort of like no downtime. Yeah. And I think that can be quite exhausting. If you've got a kid that's happy to be sat in front of the TV and they, they could occupy themselves, but I was like, just talking, asking questions. And it was like, I guess sort of like deep and meaningful questions that like you hope that your kid won't ask you, like, where does space come from? Who's God? I think in some ways I was a bit of a handful, which... It's great now because it means that, you know, you've got a great work ethic and you're never bored, you're happy with your own company and you're very curious. But I think, yeah, as as a kid, I think that can be a little bit tiring because you're just like, oh God, please shush. (laughs) I actually can picture you as a, a child asking those questions, but you actually went to university and it wasn't the experience that you had imagined. Uh, you dropped out. And am I right in saying that as much as you loved making and creating, you never viewed it as art or thought that this could be something serious that you could pursue. And I'm I'm interested because quite a few people on this podcast have said the same, that, you know, what they were fascinated in, that now I call people's diamonds, they didn't realise at that time, and they wish they had, that actually that was always the universe's path for them. I think so. I think, like, I just always thought it was like, oh, Lucy's making art, Lucy's drawing or anything like that. I grew up still in a sort of generation and I guess it was like when I was a teenager like the YBAs and stuff were coming out and there was things where oh anything can be art you know it's art it can be cool and fun and stuff I still believed that you could actually only be an artist by going to university by studying by making things that that were sort of like realistic I really thought that there was this separation between art and craft and and now I'm sort of like no there isn't at all it's whatever you you sort of want it to be and I, I think Nobody at school said you can actually be an artist because realistically, there's such a small percent of people that can be. I mean, you can be an artist, whether or not you can actually buy a house and and pay your rent and all that kind of stuff with it is another thing. But if you stick at it eventually, (laughs) eventually it will work. (laughs) Is that what you think? I think there's a tipping point that happens. I mean, before, when I did Corner Shop, which was my sort of my first like breakthrough show, which meant that I could make art full time because before I was still in like a full time job that wasn't art. I'd been doing it for about 10 years before then. And you didn't even think how 10 years is a long time. So I was 28 when Corner Shop happened and I was trying to sell my art for when I was 18. Right. So I think if you've got the stubbornness to last that 10 years without earning any money and working really rubbish jobs. I think that something gives. I think there's there's a tipping point of, of like awareness where people are like, oh, actually, maybe this person hasn't given up. Maybe we should listen to what she's saying. You just take the knocks on your chin because you have to have this absolute blind optimism that it's going to work out because the realisation that if it doesn't and you've wasted all this time doing something, you're like, ah, uh, I'd rather not think about that. I'm too far down the tunnel now. I've got to carry on through. But between us and those listening on the podcast, have there been moments that you've just gone this is not going to work to be honest with you I don't think there was I think once I'd done corner shop and it and it hasn't stopped since then and bearing mind that's seven or eight years ago now it hasn't stopped since then and I, I think I just need a small amount of momentum to sort of like keep it going in the art world there's so much like 
competition and I think you're always sort of seeing your peers around you if they're doing well you're just like what if, what am I not doing right that's like making this happen and, <laughs> but you just have to put your blinkers on and just be like no I'm on my own journey this has nothing to do with them it's fine I'm not doing anything wrong and talking about comparing yourself and looking Do you think that the mindset of being an artist as a job, you know, let's go into a school, do you think that people are saying now you can be? Because I think a lot of young people now have a much more exposure, don't they, through social media, viewing art itself. Do you think now that maybe the mindset is shifting? I think so. I mean, it's hard to say because I don't know what sort of art is being taught in schools these these days, but like it was certainly was never... I mean, even when I did like a year of uni, it wasn't like, how do you market yourself? No part of going to uni and studying fine art is spent on the business side of things. I weirdly think that I'm actually just, I've got a bit of a knack for business anyway, and just kind of entrepreneurial. And that's that's just sheer coincidence. But none of that is taught at school or at uni on how, how you do these things. You just have to learn it along the way. I remember when I did my first show, I was ringing up the newspapers and getting them to come down. And I I used to have to lie. I used to be like, oh, uh, I've just spoken to your picture desk and uh, apparently they're they're stuck in traffic and um, I don't know what's happening. So can you just send another photographer down to get the pictures? And they'd be like, oh, I haven't got you on file. Let me make a note of that. I love that. That is genius. That is absolutely brilliant. I mean, that's called faking it until you make it, isn't it? That is just the gift of the gab, being cheeky, uh, what do they say? Ask for forgiveness, not permission. Um, But just going back to your story, you worked in quite a few different jobs throughout your 20s. And ultimately, all of these experiences went to inspire your work and exhibitions later on. And that then led you to your first exhibition. So tell me about how that all came about and how felt inspired you I'd always made things out of felt from when I was really little and I just I thought I was making cuddly toys for myself because I used to come up with these ideas of um I used to write to toy manufacturers that's how much of a weird kid I was I used to <laughs> write to toy manufacturers and I was like have you thought about bringing out a range of products that is the planets and I'd, I'd send them these drawings and like these plans of how they could market this and I was like Bearing in mind, I was like nine or ten. They probably didn't need oh any help. Goodness. Certainly not from me. And then, like, yeah, I'd get a letter back and they're like, oh, dear Miss Sparrow, thank you much for this amazing, very great idea. We'll certainly keep it in mind for our future releases. And you're like, oh, they really mean it. They definitely didn't. <laughs> so in the end, obviously, when they didn't hire me immediately as a, as a product innovator mm-hmm. at the age yeah. of nine, uh, my mum just bought me a load of felt and I was like, right, this can't be too hard. I'll just make my own. <laughs> Obviously, having no concept of really how to make toys or anything. My, like, I look back at the stuff I made and obviously it's rubbish, but it just opened up my eyes of like, I'm just amazed me that basically whatever idea I had, I could make. That moment of thought that if I think it, I can create it. It was just this realisation. It's like, okay, right, surely. Like, and I was just bursting with ideas like this. This is amazing. And I, I just started this thing where I'd just make anything out of felt. I used to make like fried breakfasts and I, then I used to take them to bed with me. I had like fried eggs, sausages, tomatoes. And I never thought of it as art. I always thought of it as I make my own toys kind of thing. But I was always fascinated by things in different materials that they shouldn't be, you know. In 2014, you created a Kickstarter campaign to fund your first major exhibition and it was called The Corner Shop. So there you were at whatever illegal age you were working at a corner shop. By the way, I did too. You took over a derelict shop in East London and created 
literally a corner shop with all the sorts of things that you could find in a corner shop from milk, canned goods, confectionery. I remember going in there. It was sweets. It was the Sun newspaper. It was the shopping. But it was just incredible. It was 4,000 items, which I didn't realise. Tell me about that mammoth undertaking. What was that moment that you thought, right, that's it. I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm going to go to making 4,000 items. I remember having this, I really distinctly remember it, having a conversation on the Oxford Tube. You know, it's like that bus that runs you from Oxford to London. I, my boyfriend at the time was a lecturer at Oxford Uni. He's American um, and he's sort of got the confidence and the things that I didn't have at that age. And he was like, if you want to do, I can't do the accent. If you want to do something really good, really impressive, you've got an idea that people cannot ignore and I just, I sat there thinking and I was like, you're absolutely right. I haven't gone big enough. I need to go bigger. <laughs> and that's when I was like, well, you know, what do people like? People like nostalgia. People like corner shop. What do I like? I love things in neat rows in supermarkets. I'm going to make a felt corner shop. And I'd already been interested in kind of like derelict buildings, you know, converting spaces into things that they shouldn't be. And I just ended up walking around East London looking for derelict properties and going on land registry and looking up who owns them and just writing to them. Did you say to the person, I'd like to I'd like to start a corner shop, but everything's going to be made in felt? Yes. Three people ignored me. <laughs> <laughs> And one person eventually said yes to a meeting. And then I, I knew that I wouldn't be very convincing in letter, but I would be convincing in, in person. And I said, what can I give you that will convince you to give me this building for five weeks? Um, and then they were just like, £2,000. And I was like, I don't have £2,000. So what did you do? Um, I did a Kickstarter. <laughs> oh, yes, right, I see. And that then paid for your rent yeah. and potentially your materials that you needed for 4000 Yeah, I mean, it didn't even nearly cover it. Like, I was so over budget, it was not even funny. It was, well, you know, that was the moment, wasn't it? Because that was the moment that you, um, I've read, that you started working full-time as an artist after that show and that it was uh, the sort of your tipping point. And as you started this podcast, you said you've not not worked since, you know, that was that moment. And I remember going in there and never seeing anything like it. And, you know, for anyone that follows me on Instagram, they'll always see my shelf full of your items. And I thought that I was the largest um, but I was always like, God, I doubt anyone else went up there and went, can I have, I think, 40 items. <laughs> but am I right in saying that someone bought the entire show? Yeah, they came in um, about halfway through. I think maybe they bought about 150 items. And I was like, wow, this person's very low. This is the most money I've ever had in my entire life. And then a meeting was set up the next week and they were like, this person wants to buy the whole thing. Is that OK with you? And I was like... Uh, yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like in the Dragon's Den, you know, when they go, can I just go and consult myself? And then they just go and turn around, don't they? And they walk to the back and they have a little conversation. They come back and go, mm -hmm, that's OK. Yes. <laughs> I suppose I can consider it. <laughs> can I just ask? And obviously, you can't tell us who it is, but what on earth did they do with everything? Well, I think it, it'll, it was an art collector and I think that it will go into a permanent... It, it's in a permanent collection and one day it will go on display. So for, for all the years, it's sort of been in storage and it will eventually be seen as it 
was. Don't know when, but soon. Don't know when, but soon. Oh, yes. So you really had this sort of unbelievable awakening to the world of business. What advice might you have for other creatives, artists that might be listening to this who might be having that journey? I'm really lucky that I had people around me that gave me some really good advice early on. I'd gone from sort of working for like a temp agency. Like I used to get like two buses to work every day from North London to the centre of London to earn like seven pounds an hour to sit at a desk and answer phones. And then I'd get home at like eight o'clock and I was like, this is rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> I can't do this. And then be still making art in the evening. I remember ringing up my friend who had a lighting business and saying, what the hell do I do? And he's like, here's my accountant. Have a word with them. You need to set up a limited company. You need to separate everything out. You need to get VAT registered and all this stuff. And I was like, what the hell's VAT? I don't know what that is. What's a limited company? And I knew nothing. I knew absolutely nothing. Still to this day, my accountant's like, have you done this? And I'm like, yeah, I did it. I'll do it next week. (laughs) I'm just in the process of making 5,000 Prozac boxes, actually. Busy. I'm terribly busy. busy. And also I've read that you believe that you get out of it what you put in. Um, 100%. I think that, I remember thinking that during Corner Shop, I was like, surely all this effort that I'm putting in, I'm putting in 200% every day, something good will come out of this. And so far that sort of hasn't let me down. So I think that you get out what you put in. So, And I think people feel that. I think that if you absolutely give it your 100, 200%, yeah. it can't be ignored because there's, there's an amount of energy that goes into that. Um, and the payoff is afterwards where you're just like, oh, it worked. We're in the middle of a painting schedule at the moment. And there's 40,000 things to paint, and I think we're on 31,000. So I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But bearing in mind, that's still 9,000 items to finish. So did you just say 40,000? Yes. So this is going to be your biggest project? Yes, it will be the biggest one so far. Oh, my goodness me. And obviously no one can see this, but as you're speaking, you are also working. Because if you stop even to do this podcast you will have a backlog, which means that tonight at 10 o'clock at night, you would be cursing speaking to me. Yeah. I like to get to bed at like ridiculously early. I, I have to be in bed at nine, then I get up at five. So yeah, you can't stop the painting train. If you stop the painting train, it just, it's like, you know, if you've got a conveyor belt and it all starts piling up, you're like, no, can't do it. <laughs> so you did it all over again. So after Corner Shop, two years later in New York City, and I remember seeing this and I thought we'd lost you forever then, when you opened your eight till late installation, where you made a total of 9,000 items, everything again from chewing gum to cash register. And it was, of course, an absolute sensation. It meant that you became a, a star in America and you had all these iconic brands, American brands that you brought to life. What was the difference between doing it in the US and doing it here? I mean, I was I was really nervous doing it in the, U, in the US because obviously it was my first show over there. And I just... I. I had no idea how it would be received. The logistics of doing a show, you know, 4,000 miles away versus 50 miles away mm. is so much more. And I think that that's it. It just, but looking back now, that is, seems such a small show compared with what I'm doing at the moment. I had one assistant. I, I think I had one full-time assistant when I was doing it. And did you move out there to do it? No, I did everything here. And it, I think it was like nine massive crates to get it out there, cargo planes, 
uh, I think it was nine tons of of artwork. Bearing in mind that's like the fridges as well, so all the all the fittings and and fixtures needed to be shipped out. And oh, there was so many times during that where I'm just like, oh god, this is never going to be okay. Like, and and on the first day, I think we were in the New York Times in the back of the TVs in the taxi cabs in every cab and on the jumbotron in Times Square. And my agent just came in and she's just like, you're on the jumbotron, and I was like, what's the jumbotron? <laughs> don't know what that is but great <laughs> and it was mad and it was amazing and it, it was again one of those things where you, if you put the energy in you get it out and but you never know you always have this doubt before any show opens whether the press is going to line up whether you're going to have the people in whether it's going to you know pay back enough to cover your costs and yeah there's always this paranoia and that I don't think that'll ever end and was there a difference between people who were what, looking and buying in the US to the UK yeah they're a lot louder I couldn't believe it like come in and they're like proper screaming (laughs) screaming laughing crying it's not a better and not a worse response to the UK people in the UK are just like wow this is so amazing thank you so much for doing this and they're all like really polite and the Americans are just like god this is the best thing I've ever seen in my entire life you're like whoa We're working with our partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. Every week, we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey, covering a huge range of topics. Here I am talking to founder of Clara and Macy, Laura Clempson, as we discuss keeping your eyes on your business and focusing on what you do best. I think this point about staying in your own space of creativity, understanding that that is your diamond, the confidence you need to have is all about what you create and do. It's less about the one-upmanship or the competitive advantage, because ultimately the universe will reward those who are working their butts off, creating amazingness, committed, loyal, build brand, just mean give it their everything. And I think sometimes we, and I'm going to write an article about looking for the silver bullet, is the silver bullet that I've managed to get this deal and they haven't. Ultimately, that I think that the universe will sort that all out. I completely agree. It would be really easy. And I, I know on my down days when Mars was in neonatal that I really felt this and I was thinking, I'm falling behind, I'm not going to catch up, everyone else is doing amazingly. And you have to really remind yourself exactly what you said. You have to stay within your own diamond, your own space. And for me, maybe things have taken a bit longer over the past couple of years, but I feel like the universe will come back around in its own way if Mercury ever disappears (laughs) for now with its technical gremlins. But... (laughs) it's been a challenging week with that and blaming it all on Mercury. (laughs) For the latest lessons, advice and insights, join me every Wednesday at midday live on my Instagram. You can also visit holly.co slash hub for my business advice hub, a free online resource thanks to Dell Technologies filled with content from myself and some of our small business community sharing lessons from our journeys to help you navigate yours. And with a continued commitment to empower you, every week Dell are giving away one tech in a box. For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co slash get involved with thanks to Dell Technologies. 
Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Your work, what I love is often it has a sort of social commentary that goes along with everything, which is so interesting, as I think most would see your sort of soft, colourful felt creations as a sort of softer, calmer, more silent piece of artwork. And yet, actually, there is a real narrative that goes along with what you create. I'm thinking about your installation called War Mongery, where you explored what drives people to extreme violence. I know that uh, Madame's Roxy Erotic Emporium was inspired by a subject close to your heart. Tell me more about those things and how your work is tackling these sorts of subjects. Obviously, I wanted to do a corner shop, which is a very feel-good show, but it also sort of highlighted gentrification of areas where you're pushing out sort of like mom and pa shops mm-hmm. and stuff. And although that's not necessarily the case anymore, you know, you've obviously got Tesco Metro's moving in and neighbourhoods are changing. I don't think art or protest necessarily needs to be really in your face. I think sometimes it's okay and it's a nice alternative if you you say more by saying less mm. in a way like, okay, yes, it's a room full of like cuddly guns and stuff and it's all like, oh, yeah, that's weird. Oh, that's and immediately people sort of see it as like anti-guns and it's like, there isn't any political statement necessarily being made here and it's not trying to convince anyone of anything any other way. It's providing almost like um, a table setting for a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and what was Madame Roxy's erotic emporium? I mean, I just love the name anyway. <laughs> um, Madame Roxy's was um, actually named after I spent five years uh, in my 20s doing um, working in a lap dancing bar to make money to make my art. If you've sort of got the mindset and you've got the thick enough skin to do that, it's the quickest way that you can make lots of money in the shortest amount of time whilst only working three nights a week. And I could still have time to do all my art. So it's quite entrepreneurial. It's just being efficient in time and working out. That's it. I've got no problem. Like I, when I was in a relationship, I then went back to like normal work and stuff because it's it's you can't really maintain the two. It was just a bit efficiency. It's like I want I need the most amount of money for the least amount of hours so I can spend the most amount of time on my art. It doesn't really mean anything to me. And but the time that I spent doing that job and the people that I met and the girls that I worked with really shaped who I am today in terms of like, I can talk to anyone, I can approach anyone because you're just like, if you can approach someone semi-naked, you can approach someone about anything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Madame Roxy's was about things seeming seedy, but actually I remember people being like, oh, I can't believe you do that as a job. And I'm like, I literally just go to work and then I come home and I get into my pyjamas and I make things out of felt. Like there isn't anything to this to me that is seedy it's me going to work and then coming back home again and and I think you know when you get a girl that's a lap dancer and her boyfriend's jealous it's like I guarantee you she doesn't fancy the person that she's dancing with she's literally just thinking about what she's going to get from Burger King on the way home after her shift (laughs) I can guarantee it it means nothing (laughs) did you sew your felt in between shows yeah Yeah, I used to do that. I used to, because there was always like two or three hours before it got really busy. So I'd sit there in the corner, just like listening to the music with my sewing needle and just sewing stuff. I'd I'd just bring a massive bag of sewing with me. And it was, I was occasionally selling some bits. I'd I'd sell something for like, you know, 10, 20 pounds. And I'd be like, yes, 
made an extra tenner today. <laughs> and it always felt better selling my art than it did sort of like doing lap dances because it was, even though, yeah. you know, the time spent was was so disproportionate. <laughs> I'd love to, to, this is just brilliant. I'd love to talk a little about your process. So your workshop, where you're not today because you don't have great Wi-Fi in there, is called the Felt Cave. I'm actually in the Felt Cave, but I'm in a different room of the Felt Cave. Oh, right. So the cave has rooms. Okay, so what is your day like? Just take me through. Yeah, I mean, I get up about half five, six-ish, something like that. I'll do a little bit of painting in the morning from the stuff that I've done last night. I'll sort of go into my spare room and just do... I live about half an hour away from my studio. I'll do a little bit of painting. I'll get up, you know, get dressed and stuff. I'll um, uh, My assistant comes by my house and we, we ride share. Uh, we'll get to the felt cave about eight o'clock. There's five of us in total in there. We usually decide what music. We're working through the decades of music at the moment. So we, we, I think today we're doing years. So today's 1992. We're going back in time now. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to start all the Now That's What I Call Musics right from the very beginning. I had every single one. I remember my absolute one that I remember is now 34 because it was it was um, just before I started senior school. So it had things like Oasis and stuff. Oh, and yes. I love that. Do you remember just waiting for that tape to come out? And then you would pull out the piece of paper, you know, that goes with it. Yes. And you would literally go down the cassette, wouldn't you? And it'd be like one da, 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 da. and you would then try and fast forward you'd have to fast forward the tape to get to like number the track listing <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time i would be getting smash hits yeah where they would have the lyrics and the stickers and the stickers yeah those would be a good ones you know when you got the stickers and they would have the lyrics in there and i would used to cut the lyrics out and stick them on my wall yeah so that you know as i was getting ready for school i could just sing and obviously was going to become a pop star that did not happen thank goodness but um tell me when you work with your five amazing women you must be working seriously hard we work eight till five then obviously we have an hour off for lunch and like half an hour off for breakfast and we like have the same thing for lunch every day together you just have like soup and bread and cereal and stuff so we all like eat together it's it's like some weird felt commune. <laughs> I mean, at the moment, there's two of us painting, two of us cutting out, and then like one of us sewing. I get a lot of help from people who work from home as well, who like sew things. That's how I get so many of them. So I'm either painting or designing. We'll do that all day and then get to five o'clock. I'll drive home and then I'll do my evening painting. When I save the things that I'm, I like enjoy painting a little bit more I take it a little bit more relaxed and I put things on Netflix and I'll work again until like sort of nine or ten. Name me one thing that you really like to take home with you. Um, usually things with one colour that are a little bit easier that I can because I've got this massive spreadsheet and uh, my boyfriend set up this spreadsheet basically which it knocks the numbers off as you type them in and you can see this total being knocked down and it, it schedules what date that I'm going to complete. If I if I complete all my paintings I'm going to be done by the 25th of August. <laughs> with this podcast because I'm so aware that sometimes you're not looking down. I hear you have a banana room. I do. Can you just share what on earth that is? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll get it on video because Basil's sat here now. Oh, look, there he um, is. I'm, I'm looking yeah. at a banana, everybody. He's actually had a, he had a wash a couple of days ago, so he's looking really clean. Fantastic. He looks so clean. He looks so lovely. So what is this banana room? Um, so when I was seven years old, I got a cuddly banana and that's sort of like where it all began. I was like, right, if someone makes a cuddly banana, surely, they, you know, where are the cuddly everything else? And ever since then, I have like these eBay alerts on where else I can find them. So I'm just constantly looking for more. And then about 
Two years ago, I was like, right, enough is enough. They're getting thin on the ground. So I bought the trademark from like this dissolved company who was like, this is this import-export company based in Western Supermare. And I sent them away to be manufactured. And so now I've got like 1,500 of them because I was like, I never want to run out. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I filled, there's a room in the felt cave. It's painted yellow and there's yellow carpet. It's got yellow lampshades and yellow blinds and it's just full of bananas. And can people buy these bananas? As long as they like pass some tests about whether they're going to go to a good home. Sometimes I'm a bit like, oh, I don't know. I might take them off for sale. I don't know if you're going to be a good banana parent. <laughs> no. Do not know. Yeah. I love the idea of being so fascinated and fixated on something. It really sort of resonates with me. And any of my team who are listening are thinking, oh my God, what is she going to... I totally see what you mean. Sometimes you just have this fascination with objects. Like, you know how you're like, like I really love scissors. I just love them as a concept. I use them every day. Mm. I love how they look. And I just think that there's some things in life where you're just like, that is a brilliant object. Yeah. The same way as you think, I really like that person. I really like that object. This is why it's really getting into my heart (laughs) because I have this with birds, any birds. So if you go around my house, I have parrots and birds literally everywhere. Love it. Straws. Straws is a good one. I have thousands and thousands of straws and no one's allowed to use them though. So when they need a straw, I'm like, not that straw. Not the good straw. I have some black fine liner pens that no one's allowed to use. And I don't okay. use them. Just no one else is yeah. allowed to use them. No one's allowed to use them. Even me. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, but I don't have a straw. I'm like, it doesn't matter. You can't have that straw. And on my trip I just did, I just literally couldn't believe it. I found some marbles. <gasps> I and love I literally marbles. shouted out. I shout out in the shop. Oh my God, bring back the marbles. Marbles. <laughs> We need to do marbles. <laughs> just the lady said, what? And I just bought all her marbles, like all of them. Yeah. There was like 50. I bought all of them. And she went, what are you going to do with them? And I said, I had no idea. Just look at them. Yeah. Just keep them in a little box and like touch them. Well, they're on my, my beauty table. So every morning now I just look at the marbles and I'm like, God, we've got to bring back the marbles. Love them. Anyway, so I am so with you, but now I'm going to go and buy a company that has them and then fill a room of them. No, I'm do not it. going to. Yeah, well, I will, <laughs> but I won't tell Frank. No. But let, let's get back to this. I want to talk about being a nerd because when I think about your art and I mean... It is just on another level of brilliance. And you know, I'm just the biggest fan. We call it being a nerd when you're this fascinated by something. And we think that some of the best companies, best entrepreneurs, best founders are nerds. And that almost by being that nerd, it becomes your specialised subject. Like if you were going to go on Mastermind, you would have a felt chair, wouldn't you? Yeah. You could name every single thing that you could make up. I don't know what you would be, but you would be the felt nerd. I can tell what manufacturer the felt is from just by feeling it. There you go. You see? And and I think that not many people, funny enough, Lucy, would know that. You've spoken about your obsession with detail. Do you think it's a crucial part of your success? I think so, because it's, it's those tiny little things that aren't obvious, but the people that are also obsessed with detail notice it it puts that extra like the last one to two percent in a hundred percent package it's that last tiny bit that is so difficult and it's the fine tuning that people really really notice and you might not notice it going into a room but if it wasn't there you would Mm. you see what I mean yeah if it wasn't there you would notice it it's that extra just like little bit of neh that you just don't know and I just I love that bit bit of neh (laughs) 
that's it. And, and you know, this is also why this podcast is important, because we're like demystifying, you know, business language, you know, and why we were actually seriously considering creating the sort of small business uh, dictionary. So a little bit of nah. You know, everyone listening understands what you're talking about there. Yeah. It's that's that little bit of that that makes it all come together. We're talking in this way, and there are lots of people who might be pursuing a niche, such as yourself, going into something, and they're feeling that imposter syndrome. You know, they're feeling that thing that maybe, I don't know, they want to call themselves an artist or they want to call themselves a small business, and there's a bit of snobbery around it. There's a bit of... What are you doing? You know, explain this. Imagine yourself. Yeah, I want to create a corner shop out of felt items. I'm sure you must have received people's sort of raised eyes. Oh, my God. What, do you, what would you say to people? And, and how did you tackle that? I mean, I'm lucky in that, like, as much as caring what people think that at the same time as not caring what people think, I, like, I'm lucky that I'm strong enough to just be like, watch me you know when they say like you can't do that and the worst thing someone says is you know when if you've got that personality type it's like you can't do that and you're like right well that means now I'm gonna have to do it um (laughs) so as long as you've got that strength and you've got that absolute faith in yourself is to trust yourself more so than any of them because quite often the ones that the naysayers I always say like hate a naysayer (laughs) anyone who's naysaying to you is nothing to do with you and everything to do with them. Right, yes. As long as you can keep the faith and just keep the strength to know that, like, in the long run, you can look back at that in five years and just be like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't listen to them. And I'm so hoping they're looking at me. Yeah, I, I just, I hope that, yeah, I don't know. I think that's easier said than done, though. I'm lucky that that comes naturally, that I'm just quite a fighty person. But then I also I think it takes balls to start a, start a small business. So I think maybe you're there anyway. I don't know. I agree. Like showing people, you know, so almost take that critic and then make them the yes. power that is underneath you, like the yeah. rocket fuel saying, well, I've got to just do that last thing or push myself to the nth degree because as long as I wipe their smirk off their face, that's what I want to do. And that yeah. can actually be a great driver, I think. Sometimes it's good to have a tiny ship, chip on your shoulder. Just don't carry it with you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to now talk to you about NFS Pharmacy. Yes. Because I was lucky enough to visit your NFS National Felt Service for anyone who's wondering if Lucy's not a genius. Uh, she is. Um, in May. And goodness, it was such an experience. People were walking in thinking, is this a real chemist? The point is, is that you could buy everything from toothbrushes to Nurofen to COVID tests. What was the inspiration behind the pharmacy? And how many pieces were in there? Um, It was 15,000 pieces. By the time it actually got to where it is, it took about a year and a half to two years to make because it kept getting delayed because of COVID. But weirdly, I started it way before COVID was a thing. And I was like, wow, this is like really prescient now. (laughs) You know, but there there was that sort of period of time where I was like, oh no, this, like, if I do this, it's going to be a PR nightmare. People are going to think that I'm pretending to be like a frontline worker or anything like that. And actually that was never the case. And I didn't have that criticism at all because obviously I'm not, it's made of felt. What it did was it created an environment where we'd all been really familiar and like these chemists were our lifelines throughout this whole pandemic. And, you know, when you make something out of a different material and you present it a different way, suddenly people become a lot more aware of it than they were before. 
The timing was incredible. And what I just also loved is that I looked up and I saw the TV screen and you'd created adverts. Yeah. And then you could get the your felt leaflets, you know, so like in a chemist, you'd have your little leaflets and then there would be jars of things. It was actually phenomenal. I went and bought, there was a Rimmel stand and I bought my eyeshadow to my mascara to my Clinique uh, moisturiser. I bought many Pro Plus boxes because I just thought that was just fantastic. Tell me the reaction that people had because when I was there and I think every day you had a queue of people trying to get in. One thing I never realised when I when I first made shows like this, these immersive shows, was that the reaction of people and the people coming in was almost more of a part of the art than the art itself. It was if it was an empty shop where you know people could just look through the windows, it wouldn't be the artwork that it is. Um, and it's that interaction of me being behind the counter every day and seeing people's faces when they come in, because you almost have to come back several times to take it all in. And it's this wonderment that someone has gone to the lengths and gone to the obsession to make something so detailed. I think it's very heartwarming and that's it's just never something that I expected to be part of the artwork, but I'm really glad that it is. And now I play to that, I, I actually make it even more nostalgic and to get more of an emotional response from people because I think that's... To get a response like that from people going to an art show I, is very hard. I'm intrigued to know what was the best-selling product. Uh, the best-selling product was, I think it was either Xanax, Prozac or Chanel Number no. 5 Perfume. Well, I bought five Prozac. I just think they're the best birthday presents anyone could ever get. Yeah. It is impossible. Like you just said, impossible not to smile. Would you say that actually along with having messaging and and being able to put across a conversation, like you said, you set a table for a conversation. Is your work created to make people happy? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I it's almost frowned upon in the art world where, you know, if, if work makes you happy, it's almost seen as trivial. And I, I think it's possible to have work that makes people happy and makes people think at the same time. There was a couple of people come in and they're just like, it's almost verging on sinister because it makes you along with the smell of TCP that was in there as well, it almost makes you sort of like, I remember feeling sort of like sick with desire. And I remember that when I was a kid, you know, when you went into a toy store and you're like, I want everything so badly. And <laughs> and knowing, knowing as a kid, obviously you're like, you can't have it. <laughs> I think that's sometimes what art does to you. And, and, you know, like really nice clothes and stuff, you know, when you see something that you really want and there's this, this consumer feel about you where you're just like, oh God, I just want it. I want to live in this. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I feel like that's that. <laughs> what I felt every single time I've walked into one of your exhibitions. It's, it's. I'm slightly the worst because I then try and buy it all as well. But I can o- only begin to imagine now. So you've got your, this must be what you're doing, your 40,000, whatever it is. And no doubt you can't tell us. So this is the next thing that's coming up. Can you tell us when? It will be January, February next year. It's actually been delayed an entire year because of COVID. <laughs> um, so it was supposed to be in the, in January... Uh, it was supposed to be the January just gone. Yeah, so we've had another year. But obviously, instead of me being like, oh, this is really nice, it's taken the heat off, I'm like, add more, more, we need more things. So my assistant's just like, okay, so what are we adding now? We're adding a hot food counter. 
Okay, great. That's that's amazing because we were really on schedule and now we're not on schedule at all. <laughs> well, you've got your boyfriend's ticker tape thing going down. So, yes, you can't add any more, Lucy. So you can't. Now, what do you think that that is what you're going to do? You're going to go bigger each time. I mean, that's kind of become the obsession. And like I do, although The Chemist was smaller from the previous show that I'd done, it was almost like it was tighter. It was like there was certain things that I tried to get more details in versus quantity. Yes. So now obviously the next one I'm like quantity and quality. There's always this this constant need to better things and to bring out the next thing. And I think it's important and I'm absolutely a workaholic. I have to have all these things going on at one time. I don't ever want to feel like it's a, an idea that's got stale. I want to keep creating something that amazes people. Every week, Royal Mail helps small businesses deliver across the UK. With a staggering 74% of online shoppers more likely to use a retailer if they use them, Royal Mail helps small businesses thrive. As a central and crucial pillar within the small business community, Royal Mail continue to be dedicated to supporting our UK small business community. And therefore, I'm thrilled that they're giving away their ad break space to a small business founder every week, providing them an opportunity to showcase their business to tens of thousands of listeners right here on this very podcast. If you'd like to take Royal Mail up on their generosity, head over to holly.co for more information. So let's hand over to this week's Royal Mail Independent Ad Break winner. Imagine painting landscapes with paints directly from nature. A sky in lapis lazuli, leaves in malachite and jasper, mountains in earthy ochres. With bristle and brush, you can do just that. Our watercolour paints are handcrafted in London and made from nature, then poured into plastic-free pans. Our goal is to provide highly pigmented watercolours in the most environmental-friendly way to help you bring your imaginative thoughts into vivid paintings. These are watercolours created by artists for artists. We make them fresh monthly and we would love for you to try them by visiting bristleandbrush.co.uk. To find out more about how Royal Mail can help you, head to royalmail.com slash business hub to visit their dedicated hub for small businesses. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Touching on commerciality, your um, exhibitions, you, you were saying before we started recording, so for instance, your pharmacy was online as well but then you'll finish it. So you'll almost like say, right, that's the pharmacy closed. And then your next exhibition, you will do the same thing. So it's almost like when you do your physical exhibition, you drop your online store. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Because I have a lot of collectors in America and obviously they can't come over, even if it wasn't COVID, I can't expect them to come over and they'll still want to have a piece from the show. I think it's really important because it democratises sort of like what the art being sold and you can buy it online and and the prices really haven't increased that much from when I first started and that's always been something that's really important to me. It's almost like a a flash sale. You have the exhibition, then it comes down. The main reason for doing that is is to sort of create an event, but also there's got to be a cutoff where I can't be dealing with orders during the day preparing for the next show because it is so all-consuming. So it, it will end on Friday. The, the website will close because uh, I need to get on with stuff. <laughs> I'm on the next one. 
this has just been awesome, honestly. Just really incredible. You are incredible. And I can only imagine what you're going to do in the future. It's just going to be outstanding. And I'm just so glad I was, while you were talking just then, I was thinking, one day she's going to be so uber famous and I'm going to be able to say that I interviewed her. And that's what I thought just a moment ago. We end these interviews, Lucy, with the analogy that running your own small business is like being on an epic roller coaster. Now, what would your roller coaster cart look like? Uh, it was um, grinding slowly uphill. <laughs> But it would probably be a banana, wouldn't it? I'd be surrounded by bananas. I'd be growing up st- uphill just like, you know, what's those things where you've got really small wheels and you're trying to cycle really <laughs> fast and you don't go anywhere? <laughs> It'd be one of them. <laughs> just like a hamster wheel. A hamster wheel. Tell me, what would you say has been one of your biggest lows while on this journey? Um, I remember getting ready for the show in LA, which is Sparrowmart, and... Right up until about four or five months before it opened, it wasn't actually confirmed, the location. Um, and I remember going to these like meetings and like we'd flown over to LA and the meeting was just like, ah, oh, you know, I'm not really sure if it's something that we're going to go for. And I was just like... Had you been making everything? I'd been making everything. I'd literally been... I'd sank so much money and, and time into this and I was just like, what do you mean? What do you mean you're not sure? And I was like... and it, And that was very difficult. I'm lucky that I've done enough shows now that it doesn't take much convincing to sort of have a show Mm -hmm. put on Mm because I've got a track record. But back then I I really didn't. And so no matter how much you can sort of explain to people what it looks like in your head, unless you can translate that on paper to make sense. Yeah, that was a low. I remember coming home and just being like, well, that was a massive waste of journey. (laughs) Right, we'll just cancel the whole thing, shall we? Now what do I do with my Hershey bar? <laughs> I know. I was living in a caravan at the time as well. And my, my whole like bit my caravan was just rammed full of these plastic bags full of stuff that I had to paint. And I was like, I can't move in my own house anymore because I've got so much of this stuff and nowhere for it to go because someone in management had decided that they're not sure. <laughs> Thank God they came to their senses. It and was com- fine. Uh, it was fine. <laughs> the wonderful F word. Conversely, the greatest high when you're with your banana at the top. Um, I remember, actually, this is, I guess, only a couple of months ago, um, on the last day of The Chemist... I got this phone call, the gallery got this phone call and they're just like, oh, um, the white queue want to know if, if Tracy Emin can come in and just wondering if she could come and see the show. And I was like, this is a woman's work, like whose work I've admired my whole life. I remember seeing the show in the Saatchi Gallery when it first came out and I had like postcards of her all over my sketchbooks from when I was a, a kid and stuff because she was the only person doing sewing really in, in fine art. Yeah. And she just walked in she's just like, what an amazing, amazing show. And I, I was just gone. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't cope. My agents were crying. I was crying. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was massive. That was really, really massive. Oh, my goodness. I still have to sort of, like, pinch myself. She's like, do you want a photo? And I was like, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited for you. That must have been incredible I was totally losing losing my mind it was amazing and I and I, my, my boyfriend arrived, arrived at the same time and I was just like Tracy Emin's in the building and you know he works on trains he doesn't know who Tracy Emin is <laughs> <laughs> oh 
Oh my goodness. Loved every freaking second. Cannot wait to go into your, well, I'm slightly worried for my bank balance, but to your 40,000 of whatever you're doing, because no doubt I'm going to have to build bigger shelves at home. More shelves. More shelves. That's easy for me to do. Thank you so much for preparing a letter to your younger self for us. It's a part of the podcast. I don't know what's going to be said. Well, I don't know what's going to be said, but I hand over to my guests and I just want to say, Lucy, I'm just such a fan and I'll remember this interview. I'll remember the corner shop and I hope that you go all the way. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. All right. Shall I read the letter? Over to you. Dear Lucy, I'm writing to you in the summer of 2014 as you open Corner Shop, your first solo art show in London. You are 28 and working three jobs. A characteristically ambitious project, you know no other kind, it will see you converting a derelict shop in the middle of Bethnal Green into a fully stocked, fully fitted out newsagents filled with 5,000 handmade felt products. You've spent every minute you've had over the past two years hand sewing and painting the thousands of felt products that will line the shelves from confectionery to cigarettes, from ice creams to tins of beans. Your small flat in North London is crammed from the floor to the ceiling with art. You have pages of to-do lists from building shelves to trying to get newspapers to cover the show. Every task is yours. As you open the door onto the dilapidated shop that you have rented for a month, your mind is sharply focused on the mammoth task ahead of you. The floorboards are rotten, the paint flaking off the walls, and there is a persistent smell that lets you know that the previous tenants were probably four-legged. You feel elated but nervous. This is a huge moment for you, a real financial risk. You've taken four weeks off work and every penny you've earned has been ploughed into this project. It's make or break. If I could talk to you now, I'd reassure you that everything is not just going to be okay. It will exceed your wildest dreams. Over the next seven years, you will take the felt from Bethnal Green to Beijing via Los Angeles and New York. You will live out every one of your hopes for your career, creating felt worlds around the globe, each one bringing with it a huge audience of wonderful, supportive people. Forget the tiny room that you're working in now. You're going to have an amazing Technicolor studio. You'll have an agent and a publicist, an eight-page spread in the Sunday Times magazine. You'll be on every TV network from BBC to CBS. In fact, on one exciting evening in June 2021, the felt will do the ultimate double and be on BBC and ITV six o'clock news simultaneously. Look at those cracked and peeling windows in Bethnal Green. One day you'll have every window of the Hermes flagship store on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. They will be filled with your felt. And Lucy, one day you'll be standing in one of your felt shops and Tracy Emin will walk in. The artist that you had plastered all over your teenage bedroom walls will walk into your show and tell you that your work is amazing and to keep going. So keep going, Lucy. The hours are long and life will be dominated by hard work, but every stitch will be worth it. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. You're like um, the poster girl for dreaming. <laughs> I, I just think that people are going to just... It's everything is possible now hearing your story. I think that, yeah, if, as long as... Obviously, I could never imagine that. And it's things that, like, at best, I just... I thought that I would be happy not having to necessarily sit at a reception desk or just... I, I don't know what I, I thought I'd do. I def, definitely didn't think it would be this because I, I feel like I couldn't necessarily dream this level of success, I guess. You have, and you're doing it. And it makes everybody listening realise that their 
messed up thoughts and their dreams actually can become reality and it can become a world and you are you're that shining light for us and Lucy thank you so much I wish you everything and I can't wait to see your felt take over the world thank you very much and thanks for having me before you go, don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.